All right, before we get started today, I want to put out a special call to the regenerative skills community. Now, during this pandemic and the resulting travel restrictions, the tourism industry in Spain has been devastated and a lot of people with second properties in Catalonia and along the Costa Brava have been unable to get to their sites for lots of different reasons. Now, this made me think of an opportunity that I might be able to help with while also helping me with some of my projects. So here's the deal. I'm making a lot of educational content these days for the climate farmers and ecosystem restoration camps communities, as well as courses with Gaia Education and Sustainable Living Guide. The problem that I'm facing is that the apartment where my partner and I live doesn't offer a lot of opportunities to demonstrate and apply the restoration design methods that I'm teaching. So I thought, perhaps there's someone out there either listening to the show or who knows somebody that has a property in northeastern Spain, ideally near Barcelona where we live, who's dying to do some ecological restoration work for the benefit of the ecology of their property. But they either can't get there or they need someone to manage the site long term. So if that description applies to you or somebody else that you know, I would love to talk to you about a skills trade. You see, I'm itching to get involved with a longer term project in this area and apply my years of knowledge and experience of working on permaculture and restoration projects around the world to making this region more abundant and resilient. Now at the moment, I'm more motivated to do an exchange, especially one that involves residency and caretaking, but I'm open to find a custom agreement with anybody who reaches out. So again, if anybody knows or is a property owner in Catalonia who would be thrilled with a professional taking care of their property longer term, helping make a detailed design, managing the implementation, and monitoring and maintaining the system, please reach out to me at info at regenerativeskills.com. I'd be happy to share my portfolio and references and brainstorm ideas for just how much of an oasis your site has the potential to be. And if you know someone with a property in Spain that's nowhere near Barcelona, but would love a permaculture caretaker, please reach out to me all the same because I know of other professionals like me who might jump at the chance to help you out too. Thank you. This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. All right, everybody. In today's episode, I spoke with Van Clothier about the innovative and subtle water erosion mitigation technique called a one rock dam. I know this might seem oddly specific, but after an interview with Brad Lancaster last season, he talked about how he's been learning from people like Van and his mentor Bill Zedike about smaller, less intrusive interventions that can have profound effects on the health of a watershed. The truth is that there are so few watersheds and water bodies left around the world that aren't highly degraded and in need of restoration. Many of the communities most affected by this damage don't have the resources to hire engineers and professionals to do surveys and undertake large expensive restoration projects. A lot of what Van promotes, however, flies in the face of these large professional technical projects and teaches people how to understand their watersheds and identify the small and gradual work that can be done to improve their health. The One Rock Dam is a great example of this, and so today we'll be exploring what it is, how it can be installed, and most importantly, how to educate yourself on how to interact and intervene in a damaged waterway in an effective way that doesn't cause further damage in the long run, like many of the big professional projects do. So a little background information. Van Clothier's firm, Stream Dynamics Incorporated, specializes in turning runoff and erosion problems into water harvesting opportunities with water harvesting earthworks, urban stormwater retrofits, and riparian and wetland restoration in both urban and wildland settings. 
Van has worked extensively in New Mexico and Arizona on a variety of restoration projects with regional dryland stream restoration and water harvesting experts including Bill Zedike and Brad Lancaster. He's the co-author with Bill Zedike of the book Let the Water Do the Work, Induced Meandering, an Evolving Method for Restoring Incised Channels. Recent projects include design water harvesting stormwater retrofits for the city of Santa Fe and restoring a very large cienega, or desert marsh, in the Bothiel of New Mexico. But those are just the stats. I'll let Van tell you a bit about himself and some of the projects that he's most proud of. Um, I live in a small mountain town in the American Southwest, and I received funding from a state agency to build 80 water harvesting curb cut projects in my town. And I built all of them and had many different interactions with um, my neighbors. I have a whole bunch of projects that are still there. There's this one guy where we cut the curb and we put the water into a basin on a city right-of-way grassy area um, in front of his house, right? And then what that guy did is he cut a hole in his wall and made an overflow into his front yard, which was this huge low-lying area. And I went back during a rainstorm and then that guy was getting like a huge amount of water off the street, right? And him and his neighbors, like there's about four projects in a row on this one street. And it was flowing like hell. It was running down the gutter as fast as you could run. And I made a video by driving my truck with my smartphone sticking out the window. And I went, and I looked at the first inlet and that guy's basin was full. And I kept on going, and I zoomed into the next neighbor's pond you know and by the time i get to this guy's house he's put some bricks also out extending out into the street and he's directed all of the remaining flow and it's going into his yard and then it's weeping out through this rock wall and it's turning the city median grass into this giant sponge and that that's it the street is dry after that Okay, and all of that flow that have been going all the way down the street and into our stream, carrying polluted, sediment-laden runoff water, creating erosion. Instead, at least from that street, it soaked extremely deeply into my neighbors, my friends' yards and gardens and orchards. And they got like, I don't know, a thousand dollars worth of water, right? Totally killer. I'm trying to start something in my own town. One of the popular methods for stopping the erosion of a damaged stream or a runoff channel is to come in and install what are called gabion baskets or gabion baskets. These are big three foot by three foot square metal cages that get filled with rocks and stacked on one another in the bottom of a waterway, forming a wall that lets some water through but forces it to deposit its sediment on the upstream side, eventually building sediment up to the height of the wall. Which is a pretty good idea, right? 
But Van explained to me why this is often not a good long-term solution. About Gabion baskets versus One Rock dams and all of that. Here's the thing, right? What you need to do is to stop the gully from cutting deeper. Don't try to fill the gully in first. You're not working with the forces. What's happening is you need to just stop the gully from cutting deeper and direct that energy at the gully walls so it will cut wider instead. Okay? And then that will produce sediment that will help fill up the gully. Okay? If you build a gabion basket, which creates, you think, oh, I'm gonna trap a lot of sediment with this here gabion basket, it's gonna be four feet tall. Okay? What happens is it does trap a lot of sediment. It fills in with four feet of sediment. And then there's a four foot waterfall, which creates this huge power source that erodes the Gabion basket and starts the gully again. A two foot drop is like, you don't want to do more than a, like for beginners, raise the bottom of the gully maybe six inches, right? Get the biggest rocks you can move and put them in a line across the gully. You dig a trench and you put your bottom row of rocks in that trench. And then you put smaller rocks on the upstream side all the way across and you make a rock mattress locked in as good as you can, not high, don't you. Okay, and then here's the trick. And then you do another one downstream and you do another one downstream of that. And you build a whole bunch of these things just to keep the gully from going down. And now automatically its energy is gonna be directed to the sides. And the gully will fill itself up and bury all of your work and look like you were never there and be fixed. But if you build the Gabion baskets, you'll have this dramatic result, and then it has a built-in self-destruct mechanism. That makes sense. But I'm still curious about working in a gully or a stream that experiences such force when it floods and can easily blow out almost any installation. I was wondering if there was a way to start even smaller and gain some experience with an intervention with lower risk of failure. If you want to learn, here's what you do. You start at the top of a watershed where things are very, very small. You go to a not very big gully that doesn't have powerful floods that will move a bowling ball sized rock. And you can tell it's a gully because it's V shaped and it's cutting deeper and it looks bad, right? And when I was teaching myself, I had, I had rocks, I had rocks the size of lemons. And I put them in a teeny, teeny, tiny little rill where I saw water had flowed. And then when it was raining hard, I'd go out and I'd watch and I'd see what happened to that. And then I worked up to slightly larger systems. And and so what you do is you go in and you make a row of rocks that goes across the gully, but it's only 
one rock high, it's only like if you used one foot rocks, you'd bury them most of the way. So this thing doesn't even, this doesn't even stick up. Okay, so I'm getting a real sense of how this works, but I can foresee one potential problem. What if you're in an area that doesn't have any stones? I mean, I can't imagine that your first idea should be to bring them in from elsewhere. If there are no stones available, then probably stones are inappropriate because if your water course doesn't have stones, it has another way to dissipate energy. And you need to find out how your water course has been dissipating energy and dissipated that way. If you're importing stones to an arroyo that doesn't have them, you might be automatically doing the wrong thing. When I spoke to Bill Zedike about this, he talked about an alternative where he used large diameter wooden stakes, similarly buried deep with just a few inches sticking out above the ground and arranged in an alternating pattern, almost like a pegboard on the gully floor. Right, so imagine you have a silt bed stream. A lot of places, a lot of arid places in China have it's called Lus, like L-O-E-S-S. That's like silt that has zero stick And it's like, it's totally fucking erodible, right? If you try to stop erosion in a system like that with rocks, the silt will just rinse away from around your rocks and the rocks will dig themselves holes and they'll go to China, they'll go deeper into China. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So in a system like that, what you need to do is you need to dissipate energy. And the very best way to dissipate energy is to split it and split it and split it further still. And that's what grass does. Mm. If you can imagine water trying to flow down a hillside what if it's going through a field of thick grass it has to flow around millions of tiny little stems each one yeah. taking a little of the kinetic energy and relieving it of any silt that it may have picked up along the way and working in concert in legions to change the physics of a vast surface yeah okay especially with plant matter too those stems don't only affect the surface but they also offer a path for the water to infiltrate deeper in if it's slowed down enough right it's giving it a path to enter into the ground as well right and so in watershed restoration it's not about building a very strong structure in one place at the bottom of the watershed. In fact, I wouldn't do it. Instead, what you need to do is change the surface performance of your watershed, because that's gonna change the outlet better than anything. Van and I also talked about how these small installations lend themselves to much longer-term solutions than those big projects for one key reason. They lend themselves perfectly to being integrated with living infrastructure, 
that means real regeneration of the ecosystem as a whole. But I'll let Van explain how this works. The vegetation is more important than the dams. And if I were Gandalf, I would just move my wand and sprout a cottonwood tree there. And its roots would hold the bank better than any rocks. So um, we're always trying to incorporate our structures into existing trees and vegetation and that also helps irrigate that it makes it stronger and its roots grow among the rocks and form a guild so we're always designing we're always designing our work to cause more water to soak into the ground in the vicinity of that work in hopes that the vegetation will take over and fix the problems before the rocks get eroded. And I've got plenty of places where um, that happened. And then Mondo floods tore out my rocks, but it didn't matter because it had started this vegetation um, erosion resistant agency in the bottom land that dominated over time, even in a place where many of my structures were compromised. And I went back and I decided, I don't even need to fix the rocks. The, um, the vegetation has got this one. That's what it's about. Now this idea is really starting to come together for me. The One Rock Dam is a way to stabilize the floor of the gully so that it doesn't erode deeper, and it transfers the energy of the water to the banks, eventually widening the flow and spreading it out. But the essential thing is that it's not supposed to do the work year after year. By trapping sediment and slowing the water, it's giving the native vegetation the opportunity that it needs to get reestablished and take over the work of repairing the damaged site and holding the earth together while absorbing water into the soil and creating the conditions for more life. But how do you go about selecting what plants to seed the dam with and how do you plant them? That's a really good question. What you have to do is go and look and see what's growing there and know about other places in your neighborhood, in your neck of the woods, and know what's possible for that site. And you also need to know the watershed hydrology. Is it normally dry? If so, how deep is the moist zone? What could grow here? What could grow here now that's just not here? I'd definitely seed with a native seed mix. I'd seed with a native seed and wildflower mix from your area. Okay, and if you're going to build a one rock dam, put the seeds down before the rocks so that critters won't be able to find them as easy, right? And some of them might survive. And then when there's a stream flow event, the stream flow will bring in leaves and rabbit turds and sand grains and stuff like that and cover up your rocks and seed and something might sprout. That's a really good idea to do that. And then also, if you do have soil moisture in an arroyo, you can use a digging bar, like a six foot long, one inch, sorry for the US <laughs> unit, 
2.5 centimeters, gotcha. <laughs> a two meter, 2.5 centimeter diameter rod and jam it into the arroyo bottom and waller it around in a circle and then jam it in again and mess with it like that. If you can draw it out and there's a foot of, like it's an oil dipstick, right? Mm -hmm. What if there's a foot of water in the bottom of your hole? Guess what? Stick a willow in there and do it a hundred more times, right? And then you automatically have a willow that's growing as long as the wall, as long as it stays at least moist all the time at that spot, then you can plant willows with a bar and we've done thousands of them. They don't all grow only about like 95% of them grow. Then you, you know, you can also like get a backhoe and you can cut a branch off of a cottonwood tree and take all of the leaves off of it, every single leaf off of it and dig a big hole and stick it in upright with the backhoe as long as it's a couple feet into the water, cover it up and go home it's going to be a cottonwood tree okay it's magic for this whole time now we've been talking about this in the context of a dry or an arid landscape it's going to take a while to see results in these projects and for the vegetation to get established but i've got good news for those of you who live in more humid climates if you have water and smarts mm. it's like cheating okay <laughs> like i've done this work um, in a high mountain meadow, 8,500 foot high mountain meadow that had just a tiny little stream flow in a two foot gully. And it looked very green because it was high mountains and everything's green, but it was grass. It was uplands vegetation for that green place, right? And so with a small excavator or even a crew of volunteers and hand shovels, you can transplant sod, block the gully, raise the water table, create a marsh. You come back in the morning, all your ponds are overflowing with clean water and you fixed it right back how it should be. Just getting rid of one drainage escape. Right. Yeah, but you have to, you have to know what you're doing. You have to do it in the right place. Sure. Yeah, and so if you have if you have water, if you have permanent moisture, even then it's way easier to fix because then life comes in sooner. And that's really what this is all about. Fixing watersheds is a foundational step in creating the conditions for more life, diverse, abundant, thriving life. There is so much to know and to learn about the dynamics of watersheds, and I'm hoping that through this podcast I can help to make this knowledge more common around the world. I also know that we've been talking about a lot of things that, for many of you, won't make sense until you see them, and that's why I've linked to some great videos that illustrate the One Rock Dam and its installation in the show notes for this episode on the website. 
For the Patreon subscribers, you've now got access to the resource packet that goes along with this episode and includes diagrams and step-by-step instructions from observation and learning through implementation, seeding, and even seasonal review. I also highly recommend Van Clothier's and Bill Zedike's book, Stream Dynamics, which I've also linked to. Now, I definitely intend to make more episodes on watershed and water cycle restoration, so if you want to learn more about some aspect of this topic in particular, be sure to reach out to me through the Discord server where I'm most active, or directly at info at regenerativeskills.com. Special thanks to Hug Records for the original music by Saralangwe. If you'd like to have your own original music featured on the show, or just want to get in touch, you can email me directly at info at regenerativeskills.com. That does it for this week. Until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.